0: And uh, I, I hope you all do, but uh, either way, you're stuck with me for this morning. Um, we're going to be heading back uh, to Genesis again today, and we're going to be finishing up the stories of Joseph and his brothers uh, between now and early December. Uh, but before we get there, it's been two weeks since I, was, I last talked with you, so I'm going to ask you a question. I want to make sure we don't forget. What's the gospel? Remember? Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. All right. Now, don't forget, I'm going to ask you again next week. All right. We're going to make sure that whatever happens, that we all can remember that. If we ever get to have to, to be really old and have Alzheimer's, we might not remember our name, but I want you to remember the gospel. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. It is that is, that is our hope. It is that message which gives us new life. It is that which imparts life to others. And it is that by which we enter into the kingdom of God. So, uh, as I said a minute ago, we're going to be heading back into Genesis. So, uh, if you want to start making your way there, to, we'll be in chapter 37 today. And as you make your way there, let me ask you a question. Do you ever get concerned, do you ever worry, maybe even a little, that the sins that you commit are going to later bear fruit and have consequences in the future in your life? Because sin often has a way of doing that, of being sown today and and then we reap later. Consider these words from Oscar Wilde, the noted playwright of the 19th century. This is what he wrote at the end of his life before he died at 46 from the repercussions of his libertine lifestyle. He said, The gods had given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search for new sensation. The paradox was to me in the sphere of thought. Perversity became to me in the sphere of passion. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber, one has some day to cry aloud from the housetop. I ceased to be Lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul, and I did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me, and I ended in horrible disgrace. Oscar Wilde. Guy had a lot more wisdom at the end of his life than he did as he lived it. Maybe you're not the literary type. Maybe you like movies. (laughs) Year 2000. Uh, there's a movie came out called The Patriot, starring Mel Gibson. Some of you may have seen it. Uh, whatever you think of uh, Mel Gibson's personal life, which is not much, uh, he plays uh, a character there in that movie named Benjamin Martin, who is loosely based on the Revolutionary War hero Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox. And the movie opens with a view of the inside of Benjamin's old trunk, his old uniform and his paraphernalia, and specifically his tomahawk from the French and Indian War, and you hear that great voice, I don't have Mel Gibson's voice, but he's got a great voice, and he says, I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me, and the cost is more than I can bear. And what you see as the movie unfolds is that indeed, in a way, his sins do return to visit him because what he is talking about and what that tomahawk represents are atrocities that he committed during the French and Indian War about a decade earlier, two decades earlier. And his own family bears the consequences. He loses two sons and a daughter-in-law in in horrible atrocities committed by the British as he is at war with them. And I don't believe, I, I don't think it's biblical, this idea that some people teach of generational sin, that sin carries on in families. But I do know that God is both loving and just. According to Romans 1, many times the wrath of God is revealed in letting us experience the consequences of our sin. And I do know, both from Scripture and from experience, that the sins of the fathers can very easily become the sins of the sons. Amen? Because children learn all kinds of things from their families, and not all of them are good. And this week in in chapter thirty seven of Genesis is not it's not a particularly uplifting chapter. Uh, it's not a it's not a chapter that you would read because you've been having some discouragement lately and you'd like to be encouraged in your spiritual life. It's kind of a downbeat chapter. It's one that is a warning to us and one that we do well to heed. So, you have your Bible open uh, to chapter thirty seven of Genesis. We're going to look here. Uh, at the whole chapter but we'll look just at a chunk at a time. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan and these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah his father's wives and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round it, And bowed down to my sheaf, and his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now this chapter begins by wrapping up Jacob's life, Uh, this expression that you see that's there in uh, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob, Uh, that expression, these are the generations of, is in Hebrew one word, the word Tolodot. and it means these are the generations of, or this is the genealogy of, and it's an expression that appears repeatedly all through Genesis, this is the last place that it appears, and it appears at the end of someone's life at least the, the when they're going to be a major focus. And so you see it with Esau, you see it with Isaac, you see it with Abraham, you see it with Jacob, you see it with the uh, the patriarchs before them. And this kind of serves as a transition marker in the text. Okay, we're done with Jacob as a major character, and we're going to move on, we're going to transition, and we're going to introduce a new main character. And that new main character is going to be Joseph. Uh, the author just spent chapter 36 uh, telling us about Esau and his descendants. And, so, and he's now, so now he's coming back to Jacob and saying, okay, now that's everything to do with that generation. Now we're going to talk about the new generation, Joseph and his brothers. And when we meet him, what we find out is that Joseph is one of the youngest sons. He grew up with the sons of Jacob's concubines. Uh, Leah had had six sons. And then she was not able to have any more children. And so, uh, and and by the way, Rachel, the other younger sister that Jacob had also married, she hadn't had any children, so she gave her concubine uh, to Jacob as a wife to have uh, children by him that would be legally hers. And Leah saw that and thought, you know, that's a good idea. I'm going to give my concubine to Jacob also and this this always turns out well, you know. Um, and so you've got you've got this polygamous household going, and Jacob I mean Joseph rather is growing up with the sons of the concubines. He's one of the youngest boys. He's the firstborn son of Rachel, which is the only woman that Jacob wanted to be married to in the first place. But of course, his father-in-law tricks him, gives him Leah on his wedding night instead of Rachel, and then they, he also gets these two handmaids in the deal as part of marrying the girls, and then they give him to these gals as wives, and it just becomes a complete mess. And every time, by the way, that you have a polygamous situation, you have competition not only among the wives, but also among the kids of who is more loved and who is... who is. Uh, who is the favorite? Who's the greatest source of affection? You know, I didn't grow up in a house where, where there was favoritism, but some people did. And you know what that's like if, the, if that was your house. Well, my big sister, you know, she was the good child. So she was the favorite. I was the black sheep. You know, I mean, and, and that happens sometimes. But whenever it does happen, it's sin, and it happened in Jacob's house. Remember, his, his father Isaac loved Esau, the man of the fields and the forest. And his mother, Rebekah, liked Jacob the best because he was mama's boy. He was the, the guy of the cook tent and the camp. And Jacob should have learned how destructive that was but instead he carries that on he carries that on and he starts treating joseph as if he is the firstborn son he sends joseph the 17-year-old boy the youngest or one of the youngest out to check on his big brothers who are probably by this time some of them around 40 how would that feel Any of you guys out there 40 years old or older than that, some of you? Okay. Now you're going to have a high school junior come check on you and report back to dad. How's that feel? Okay. Or you ever worked at a company where the boss's kid is now a supervisor? And you're like, what does that kid know? He just started to shave last week, you know? It's that kind of a feeling. And he's their brother, but he's checking up on them. And on top of that, Jacob gives him, it says, a robe of many colors. Or your, your translation may read a richly ornamented robe. Or some translations read a robe with sleeves. Now, the reason for those variant translations is we're not really sure what this word means. It appears here and one other place in the entire Hebrew Bible. Uh, the other place, it refers to the kind of robe that the virgin daughters of King David wore. And so, it, it's, it's, a, it's an exterior garment, but it's a garment that indicates position. That, that this is the favored son. This is the boy who I've designated as the boss. It may have long sleeves and long sleeves not well suited for work. So this was kind of this idea that y'all can do the working and the shepherding and all that, and I will be a man of leisure. And so even though everybody knew that Jacob, I mean that Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, and everybody knew he was the firstborn son of the favorite wife. This robe just serves to put a bell on all that, and it causes division and strife and hatred in that family. It's the equivalent when in uh, Luke 15, where the father says to the prodigal son, says to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. It's that idea. And finally, topping it all off, Joseph has a couple spiritual dreams, which he decides to share with his family. Now, he's seventeen; he's not real smart. And these dreams indicate that that Joseph not only has a more that Joseph has a more vibrant connection with God than his brothers. In addition to the favor of his father, he has favor with God. And the first dream is about bundles of grain, and it's a prediction in the fact that all of his brother's bundles bow down to him, that later on in life, in something to do with grain, that Joseph is going to be lord over his brothers, and that's going to happen. But his brothers aren't interested in hearing that, as you wouldn't be either. And later on, Joseph dreams that the sun and the moon and 11 stars will bow down to him, indicating that his rule is going to be universal over the whole world. Not just over his brothers, but over even his mom and dad, because his rule is going to extend over the planet, just like the sun and the moon and the stars. And that's going to happen too. It's going to take a while. And Jacob... You know, when he he starts sharing all this, it causes more and more hatred. And Jacob should have seen how favoritism was dividing up his family and severing relationships between brothers. And he should have seen how favoritism in Jacob's own life had severed him from his relationship with his mom, whom he loved, and also from his father and brother, but he doesn't. And so that sin is going to bear fruit in his family. Let's keep reading. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? seeking my brothers he said tell me please where they are pasturing the flock and the man said they have gone away for i heard them say let us go to dothan so joseph went after his brothers and found them at dothan and they saw him from afar and before he came to them they conspired against him to kill him and they said to one another here comes this dreamer come now let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits And then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brother listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Jacob is living near Hebron, uh, and his sons are pasturing the flock about 50 miles to the north, near Shechem. Last seen as the place where Simeon and Levi had slaughtered a bunch of people. They are off pasturing the flock near, near there, and Jacob sends Joseph to check up on his brothers again. He doesn't find them at Shechem, and so he goes on to Dothan, which is about another 15 miles to the north. And as he's coming over the hill, they see him, and they think, Ah, it's Mr. Dreams-a-Lot. It's about time he showed up. When he gets here, let's take a stick to him. And throw him down one of these holes, and then we'll see about all of his dreams that he's having. They're in a remote area. No one's going to hear him scream. On top of that, they're 65 miles from home, and as long as everybody keeps their mouth shut, no no word's ever going to get back to Dad as to what has occurred. They hate him. And Reuben is the firstborn son. He's the only one that has any compassion and who objects to killing him. And so he and he thinks he'll be a hero later when he brings the boy home, and he'll be elevated among all of his brothers. And so his brothers throw him down a dry well, and they wait, and they have lunch. Perfect thing to do when you're debating whether to kill your brother. Have a snack. And so the other brothers, they say, "Well, look, here it comes some traitors now." Let's sell this boy off. Because, I mean, after all, he is our brother. We don't want to kill him. But they sell him, and they sell him cheap. They sell him for 20 pieces of silver. Uh, the standard rate was 30 pieces, but they give the Ishmaelites a discount of 20 pieces of silver. And they for, these foreigners take him down to Egypt. About that time, Reuben shows back up thinking, I'm going to go rescue the boy. I'm going to take him home. Dad's going to love him and love me, and it's going to be good. And he can't find him. He's like, guys, what did you do with Joseph? Oh, him. Yeah, well, there's some traders coming by. You want your cut? He's the firstborn son. He's responsible for his younger brother's life. And he goes, I can't even go home now. What are we going to do? So, well, we got this robe here. We'll just kill one of the goats and we'll rip the robe into shreds like a lion has got to him. And we'll dip it in the goat's blood. And Dad will come to the right conclusion. They slaughter this goat. They dip Joseph's fancy robe into it. And they bring it to Jacob as if they're totally innocent. Is this your boy's robe? kind of looks like his. We found this out in the wilderness. And the man who deceived his father with goat skins is deceived himself by his own sons with some goat's blood. And the pain they inflict on Jacob is so enormous that he continues to mourn for weeks and months. And days and days. In fact, he says, I'll go to Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the grave. I'll go down to death mourning my son who died in this horrible way. And the family is never quite the same after this. Can you imagine going to the funeral? Oh, Joseph, you know, and everybody's wailing and crying, right? And meanwhile, you're one of the brothers, and you know this whole thing is a lie. And that you have you have sold your brother as a slave cheap at a discount down to, some, down to Egypt. Can you imagine how cold you have to be to stand there in front of your dad and go, yeah, it's a tragedy, oh, cut off in the prime of life. Oh, we should hunt down that lion, Dad. Can you imagine? I mean, that's, you're a cold-hearted snake to be able to do that. What kind of a lying, thieving, deceptive person have you got to be to make this happen, right? And this family is just wrecked for decades afterward. And these guys live under the guilt and the shame of what they've done for decades until finally the truth all comes out, and we'll get to that later. Because the truth has a way of doing that, you know. Truth will out one, one way or another. And here we are, the sons of Jacob are walking in the worst of the sins of their father. Deception, hatred, division, lying, contemplating murder. They're not radically different from the Canaanite people that are, that, among whom they're living. And rather than bringing a holy light to the people around them, here they are downstream in the moral sewage. And they're doing the sins of their father one better. And that really is the warning of this passage. Because the reality of it is is that if you are a parent, in fact, if you are a person, you are leaving a legacy of some kind for those who will come after you. And our children will inherit the country we leave them. Amen? Our children will inherit the family structures and the sins and so forth that we perform in front of them. Because people learn to do what they've seen done. And if you don't believe me, think back 30 years in our culture. 30 years in our culture ago, I'll just raise one example. 30 years ago, certain topics like so-called gay relationships were not even discussed. Not even discussed. It was very, very quiet. And now, not only are is it discussed, it's celebrated. There are multiple characters on popular TV shows during prime time that are having that kind of relationship. And we're now debating as a country whether to allow people in that kind of relationship the same status of marriage as those who get married according to God's design. Why is that? It's the country that our parents left us and we're leaving a legacy too. And or consider this example. You know, everybody that I know laments the fact that people a lot of people today live together before they get married. Why do they do that? Well, one reason is is that they've never seen things done any differently. But another reason is is that they are scared. Why are they scared? because they have seen the destruction that was brought into their home by their parents, divorce. And they don't want to be divorced, and so they want to leave themselves an out. Well, we're going to try this out. We're going to have a trial relationship, and if it works okay, well, then we'll get married. But I want to, have a, a, I want to prop the door open so I can get out of this in case it turns out like my parents'. Because I saw where that went and what a train wreck that was, and I don't want to live through that again. And so a lot of people think, well, why take the risk? And if you wonder why we are living in this country in the midst of moral rot, it's because we've not only inherited it from our children, but we are pass- from our parents. We're passing it to our children. We've not only inherited it from our parents, we're passing it to our children. And if we want a different culture, we have to start with us. Because too many of us are not any different from the world around us. In private, we curse and we fight just like they do. In private, we watch the same ratty TV and movies that they do. In private, we divorce and we fornicate and we view porn and we're driven by the same greed that they are. We treat the Bible's exhortations to holiness like an optional extra to our salvation rather than the proof that we possess it to begin with. So let me ask you, put yourself in the story for just a second. Surely you would never have a polygamous marriage. And surely you would never favor one of your children over all the others and, and then go to great lengths to demonstrate that favoritism. But what kind of example of holiness and the fear of God are you leaving your kids? What kind of example of prayer, of devotion to your spouse, of devotion to, to and love for all of your children, devotion to your church, through which you experience worship and the community of the people of God? What sort of example are you, lea- are you leaving? Is it one of cleansing from sin, even to the point of shedding your blood, as Hebrews says? What kind of life are you living out before a watching world, before you're watching kids? If it's one of sin, then let today be a day of repentance. Let today be the day when you turn from evil and seek forgiveness from God at the throne of grace, which is open to us through the blood of Christ. Otherwise, what we will experience, I believe, is, as Benjamin Martin said, our sins returning to visit us and the cost being greater than we can bear. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we read a story like this and we can a lot of times stand distant from it because we aren't prone to the same issues. We don't favor one of our children above the others. We don't have polygamous relationships that create all this competition among the kids. Uh, We don't encourage and foster hatred among our sons and daughters. We don't contemplate murder, we don't sell one another into slavery, but Father, we're not off the hook, because Father, the sins that we commit, very often our children will walk in them, and the things that we give into and treat as if they are a light and momentary deal of no future consequence, very often when we fail to repent, come back to bite us, and to bear bitter fruit in the lives of our of our children, and of, and of us, and of our church, and of our, even our whole country. And Father, I pray that today would be a day for repentance, that each of us would make a, a renewed commitment to be holy, to walk before you in a way that pleases you, to treat your commands not as if they are optional and extra and peripheral to the Christian life, but that they are central and that they are proof that we do, in fact, know Jesus. Father, I pray that we would be your devoted children and that you would be pleased with us and that we would find your favor as we walk in holiness before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.